Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And so, Dublina, while you were on your maternity leave, as you know, I did a few episodes with co-hosts. And the very first one I did was with Jonathan Strickland of Tech Stuff. And when we were trying to figure out a topic, he threw out the idea of number stations. And I don't know, have you had you ever heard of number stations before? Not until this. Not until this. So I hadn't either. I think Tech Stuff, he and Chris actually did an episode on them. But they are shortwave radio stations that broadcast a sequence of numbers or sometimes a sequence of letters or words interspersed with little clips of music. And they appeared, and people aren't quite sure when they appeared, but probably sometime not long after World War II, they were used for spy communications, most likely. Some are still active today. They're really creepy sounding. Uh, Dublin and I listened to a few before this. They sound like creepy kids' music almost, and maybe I just think this because I've listened to a lot of kids' music lately, but... (laughs) They you know, sort of the automatic, the music that comes on when you have one of those little kids vibrating chairs or whatever. And then maybe the key would change and it mm-hmm. would get creepy. Yeah, they are kind of like that. I, I couldn't find a clip like this to send you, but some of them even have children reading the numbers, which adds to the creepiness. But anyway, Jonathan and I talked about that a little bit, decided not to do the episode on that specifically. But I did go out searching for some of these number stations to, to listen to them. And after listening to some of those broadcasts, It reminded me of another wartime radio-related topic and a listener suggestion, Tokyo Rose, who is, of course, the English-language voice of Japanese propaganda during World War II. There were a number of these radio personalities during the war, basically English-speaking broadcasters who were based in Axis territory, and they aimed at demoralizing Allied troops with a number of things, including things to make them homesick, grim or fabricated battle reports and predictions, and also plenty of pop music that was the thing that kept the soldiers listening in the first place. Yeah, they're kind of a strange combination of that, really, because... They needed something for the soldiers to tune in. And part of that was the the homesick part, too. A lot of times the announcers would be familiar-sounding female voices that reminded them of home. But in most cases, the the names of these people, I mean, there's Axis Sally, there's Lord Ha Ha, there's Sinister Sam. In most cases, the name was just really an allied nickname. It was not a real person. It was for a series of these anonymous broadcasters. And in Tokyo Rose's case, there were probably actually about 20 or more than 20 women broadcasting Japanese propaganda in the Pacific, some under real DJ names like Orphan Anne. Uh, troops imagined that these generic Tokyo Roses were seductresses, taunting them and making them miss home at the same time. Sometimes there would be crazy rumors about who the real Tokyo Rose was. Maybe she was General Tojo's mistress. Maybe she was a hula dancer. She could have even been Amelia Earhart. That's my I mean, favorite these were just, rumor. <laughs> I know. Those were some of the rumors going around. <laughs> Gotta be Amelia, right? Um, but most of these generic broadcaster names did have real people behind them, uh, or at least 
one individual who would finally be named, including Axis Sally and Lord Ha Ha. Uh, for Lord Ha Ha, it's William Joyce, a guy who was eventually executed for treason for Axis Sally. It's usually a woman named Mildred Gillers who did end up doing some prison time for treason. And Tokyo Rose is the same way. And because today's topic, of course, focuses on her, we're going to start with a clip from A. Tokyo Rose herself introducing her own radio program before we kick off our podcast. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate, Orphan Anne, a radio Tokyo. The little sunbeam whose throat you like to touch. We're ready again for a vicious assault on your morale. Seven five minutes of music and news. So the Tokyo Rose you just heard with the DJ name Orphan Anne is actually our lady of the day, the person we're going to talk about. You might already be able to tell, but she didn't really fit the mold of the other Tokyo Roses that we described earlier. For one thing, she had a comic voice rather than a seductive one. And she delivered these really funny, over-the-top kind of blows to morale rather than the real crushing news or the jabs that people had come to expect from the other Tokyo Roses. She did. Just an example of this saying that she was going to deliver a vicious assault on your morale before going on to say, quote, I know what you need is some jive. It helps you relax. And then playing, I don't want to go to work. It doesn't really come across as a very vicious assault on your morale. It's kind of funny. But out of all of the 20 plus Tokyo Roses who are known to have broadcast to allied troops in the Pacific, it was this rose, Orphan Anne, also known as Iva Ikuko Tuguri Dequino, who was tried and convicted of treason for her wartime work. Obviously, she was a scapegoat. She was the face, if not actually the voice, of a wartime enemy, a a wartime enemy who became a much hated one, especially after the war was over. And she even later told CBS News herself, quote, I suppose they found someone and got the job done. They were all satisfied. It was eeny, meeny, miny, and I was mo." How she got to be Mo, though, is truly surprising and involved wartime desperation, unscrupulous journalism, Cold War posturing, and a truly, truly ill-timed vacation. So we're going to go into that a little bit. But first, we want to start with giving you a little background on Iva. She was a Nisei, which was basically a second-generation Japanese immigrant. And she'd been born on the 4th of July in 1916 in Los Angeles. And since her parents and her older brother had been born in Japan, they couldn't become American citizens. However, they were there seemed to be at least a pretty quintessentially all-American household. They lived, for example, in a mostly white neighborhood rather than a Japanese community. They attended Methodist church and the kids went to public school. Iva and her brother both grew up speaking English and they helped their father with his store and import business. And Iva hiked, played tennis, was really popular with her classmates and loved swing dancing. So definitely seems like an all-American girl. All-American girl. girl. And according to Women in World History Encyclopedia, Iva even said later that she never really felt discriminated against growing up, something that was quite common, unfortunately, for many other Japanese Americans uh, before and after the war, of course. But in 1941, Iva graduated from UCLA, and she started taking some graduate classes. She was thinking of, of going on to med school. But in the summer of 1941, so shortly after, 
after her graduation. Her sickly Japanese aunt invited her to visit the home country and care for her for, for a time. Iva didn't have a passport, but that actually wasn't a problem at the time. She got a certificate of identification from the State Department. She packed her bags with chocolate and coffee and canned meats because she hated Japanese food. She didn't even like to eat rice. So she was preparing for what was clearly going to be a relatively short summer trip. When she left in July, too, of course, the U.S. and Japan were not yet at war, (laughs) a crucial point in this scenario. And they weren't at war when she applied for her passport home in September either. But as the State Department processed her application, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and suddenly American-born Iva was stuck in enemy territory. So she soon found her position got even worse. She could only be evacuated as a citizen through India, something that cost more than $400 and was well beyond her means. After that, she tried to get the Japanese authorities to detain her as an American national, which they refused to do since she was of Japanese descent. But she also refused to renounce her American citizenship and declare herself Japanese, a route that about 10,000 other people like her took in Japan. And this decision made her immensely suspicious to Japanese authorities who suspected that she was an American spy and they would search her aunt's home repeatedly until Iva finally moved out. So this is her situation in Japan, wartime Japan. She's unable to return to the U.S. She's unable to be an official foreign national and be kept in custody as such. She's unwilling to become a Japanese citizen. Plus, she gets no ration card because she's an enemy alien. So... (laughs) Not a great situation to be in. She obviously needs to find work. And she doesn't even have a great command of Japanese. She She's taking language classes, but she's not particularly fluent. Finally, she finds work as a typist at the Domain News Agency. Um, but just a bad time. She's not making very much money at all. The food rationing card problem is pretty major because she's suffering from nutritional deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies. She's at one point hospitalized with scurvy and beriberi. And in 1943, she gets a second job, which must have seemed like a real blessing at the time. It's at Radio Tokyo, uh, also a, a typing job. And Radio Tokyo is an interesting place for her to wind up because there were several allied prisoner of war broadcasters based there. And so she did what she could for her fellow Americans, these these POWs and other allied POWs, you know, helping them with food when, when she could get it, helping get them some clothes, just doing her best for her for her fellow allies. This action ultimately earned her the trust of a guy named Charles H. Cousins, who was an Australian broadcaster who'd been captured in Singapore and forced to broadcast propaganda in Japan. And just a side note here, according to the Washington Post, he made a deal with his captors where he would read, um, he'd read the script of, of propaganda messages, but he also convinced them to allow him to read POW names uh, because he thought it would serve their purposes still. These are the guys we've captured, but it would also help the allies, help their families know who was who wasn't dead. They were they were just in custody. 
And Cousins, along with American POW Major Wallace Ince and Filipino POW Lieutenant Norman Reyes, had gotten permission to start a new propaganda show, which was called Zero Hour, though their plan here was actually to subvert the Japanese message, basically to make the program a joke, but one that the Japanese censors weren't quite in on. And they chose Iva with this purpose in mind. Cousins later said, quote, with the idea that I had in mind of making a complete burlesque of the program, her voice was just what I wanted, rough. I hope I can say this without offense. A voice that I have described as a gin fog voice. It was rough, almost masculine, anything but a femininely seductive voice. It was a comedy voice that I needed for this particular job. So let's take another listen to her. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all for now, enemies, but there'll be more of the same tomorrow night. Until then, this is Orphan Anne, your number one enemy, reminding you G.I.s always to be good. Goodbye now. So even if you exclude the true subversive intent of Zero Hour, it's important to note Iva's role was that of a DJ. She introduced pop songs, joking that she was the GI's number one enemy. It's all very lighthearted yeah. sort of stuff. And I really like her voice, by the way. It's <laughs> interesting sounding. But the program was considered successful enough by the Japanese, too. I mean, they weren't picking up that this whole thing seemed a little bit subversive. Um, it, it was successful enough that they wouldn't let her leave the job, even though she attempted to do that several times. By April 1945, she converted to Roman Catholicism and married one of her Radio Tokyo co-workers, a guy named Philippe D'Aquino, who was a half-Japanese, half-Portuguese worker at at the same place and and had Portuguese citizenship, too. And both of them eventually did leave their jobs at Radio Tokyo when it became, when their clear pro-allied sympathies just became a little bit too controversial for them to keep on working in propaganda officially. And just a few months after their marriage, the war was over. And really, Ivan and her husband probably could have just slipped back quietly into their pre-war lives at this point, except that Iva was contacted by two journalists, a guy named Harry Brundage and a guy named Clark Lee. And she was overly welcoming to them, in part because she was happy. She greeted the the Americans as as her friends and her fellow countrymen. She saw these guys as as Americans she could talk to finally. It was a good time. She wanted to share her story. She wanted to talk about her wartime work. She freely admitted that she was a Tokyo Rose. But the reporters didn't publish her story as this patriotic tale of subversion. Like, we made zero hour, and it was really to thwart the Japanese message. They published it as a confession, the confession of Tokyo Rose. They didn't pay her the $2,000 that they'd promised for the scoop. That was another motive for her talking to them, clearly, after all this wartime deprivation. And she had no idea that... One thing, the story would be manipulated that way, but also that it might get her in some serious trouble. And it wasn't long before the FBI was in Tokyo to investigate her, and she wound up imprisoned for a year. During that investigation, the FBI listened to recordings of her program. They also interviewed hundreds of GIs who had heard her show and examined Japanese documents. And ultimately, they decided there was no case here. She had just been a DJ reading bits written by major cousins. 
After her release from prison, though, she got pregnant, and she and her husband began petitioning to return to the States because they really wanted their child to be born at home. Brundage, who was angry over losing his original scoop here, started to write about her again, as did Walter Winchell, a media personality, and the two of them, they stirred up some outrage here. Veterans groups like the American Legion were quick to ID Iva as the Tokyo Rose, not just a Tokyo Rose. She was basically, to them, a compilation of every anti-American voice they had heard during the war, and they petitioned the Justice Department for her prosecution. So Iva and Philippe's child ended up being stillborn, but by that point, she was going to be returning to the United States regardless. And even though the earlier investigation had shown that there was nothing to charge her with, the prosecution would look good to the administration during an election year, especially because President Truman was criticized at this point for being too soft on communism, too soft on anything that was un-American. J. Edgar Hoover was in favor of prosecuting her. So it seemed like a good move politically to, to go after this woman. But while the FBI had already interviewed hundreds of servicemen, and most of them had said, if anything, her program was morale-boosting. They liked it. It was funny. It was nice to hear a familiar voice. The Justice Department put out a press release asking for others to come forward, anybody who could identify her voice as, as that of one they had heard in the Pacific. They also sent Brundage, and this is really surprising to me since it seems like he would have a lot of interests involved in the story by this point, which he did. Uh, they sent him to Japan to find some other witnesses, people who had seen her broadcasting. Uh, one of his witnesses, he finds, ends up uh, committing perjury. <laughs> He's responsible for it. So clearly he was not a good, chan- uh, good choice to send to Japan after all. But finally, in September 1948, she was indicted on several counts of treason and escorted by the military back to the United States. So what is the seven years after she left on this ill-fated trip? She finally is coming home, but to be met with FBI agents when she arrives. Right. And the trial, which started in July 1949, went on at the same time as the Alger Hiss case, which I think you guys discussed while I was gone. Ben and I discussed it during the the McCarthyism episode. And um, I was, Dublin and I were just chatting before this. You always see the Alger Hiss trial mentioned in the lead up to McCarthyism. I have never seen this one <laughs> mentioned. I mean, it's not about spies and communism, but it's clearly in the same vein. So for Iva's case, 19 witnesses from Japan were basically put up in style and they testified to seeing her broadcast. Ironically, many of these who testified against her were Nisei, who had renounced their citizenship during the war. Unlike her. Right. And Iva was defended by Wayne Collins, supported by colleagues like Cousins, and had evidence that she had indeed helped American POWs during the war. Still, she was convicted on one count for supposedly saying, quote, Orphans of the Pacific, you are really orphans now. How will you get home now that your ships are sunk? Yet this had aired right after an Allied victory, so there's the possibility that maybe this was a joke at the false nature of propaganda programs. If she said it at all. <laughs> if she really said it. But ultimately, she was convicted as if she had said it. And according to the FBI, she was only the seventh person convicted of treason in U.S. history. And this really gets crazier when you hear 
what the jury foreman had to say. He later admitted that they'd wanted to find her not guilty. They had deliberated for a very, very long time. They wanted to find her not guilty, but they felt that it countered the judge's instructions and his comments about how this trial had been really expensive and they needed to figure something out. It had cost half a million dollars for the government. So the jury had come to the conclusion, all right, we kind of want to find her not guilty, but we don't want to disobey the judge. That's always a bad thing if the jury's thinking that, and decided that they would find her guilty on the most minor of the treason charges uh, and hoped that that would mean she would get off her time served already. You know, she'd already been in jail for about two years at this point. Instead, though, the judge sentenced her to 10 years prison time and a $10,000 fine, which horrified the jury. She ultimately served seven years of that time in West Virginia before she was finally released in 1956. When she was released, though, the government threatened her with deportation. She successfully argued that this was an impossibility, a legal impossibility, because she could not be deported if she was a U.S. citizen. How could she be convicted of treason if she was not a U.S. citizen? It, It didn't work out. So they agreed, okay, you can stay in the U.S. But instead, they just treated her as a stateless person, basically forbidding her to travel outside of the U.S., something that made her married life impossible since they'd also banned her husband from entering the country. So although she and her husband didn't ever divorce, they also weren't ever able to see each other again. Which is maybe the saddest part of this already really sad story. Uh, finally, she moved to Chicago, which is where her father had settled and built up his import business. He was pretty well off by this point. She was ultimately pardoned by Gerald Ford in 1977. Um, one of the reasons why it took so long for that pardon is she didn't really have the support of the Japanese American community for quite some time. Um, people really saw her as a, as a disgrace, not looking at the intricacies of her story and how she had really been kind of a model American in an in a um, enemy country during wartime, um, but by the second generation, by t- by the time it got to the folks who were looking for reparations for a Japanese internment, uh, her case took hold of people again, and and folks wanted some sort of justice for her. According to her Washington Post obit, and this was the part that kind of brought tears to my eyes, she was regretful that her pardon came shortly after her father's death, and. She said that he'd always told her, quote, you were like a tiger. You never changed your stripes. You stayed American through and through. So this is something that's really sad to hear since he and the rest of her family had been forcibly moved to an Arizona internment camp during the war. So they had also suffered. Yeah, that they were all so patriotic. And and that was something she didn't know too during her time in Japan you know when she when she would not accept Japanese citizenship she didn't realize that her family had been deported by that point uh, so she died in 2006 at the age of 90 after many years of running the business successfully uh, her obituary also mentioned things like she liked attending the Chicago Lyric Opera she liked quilting she kept a pretty low profile life uh, as as one would expect from so many bad experiences with these with these interviews her biographer Masayo Dus said that her case was, quote, one of the most egregious miscarriages of justice in American legal history. And um, 
one thing, I mean, there, there are so many sad points, especially at the, at the end here. But one thing that really got to me, I realized that the clips, the clips that we've actually played are reenactments and they're from very shortly after the war. And you can, uh, see video of her, of her doing them. You know, she's in the studio. She's got the microphone. There's a guy putting a, a, LP <laughs> on the turntable when she cues in the song um, because, of course, there aren't uh, really records of the broadcast. I think there is one uh, record of a zero-hour broadcast, but most of those FBI files had been destroyed when they decided first go-round that she there was no case against her. She couldn't be prosecuted. Right. So these were reenactments. She had done these thinking... This was a totally okay thing to do. Otherwise, why would you reenact your your time as Tokyo Rose or or Orphan Anne? She thought it was going to be okay, and it wasn't. No, it clearly turned not. out not to be. Okay, listener mail time. So, Tablina, I mean, I think this one is is really probably for you, but it's a very cute email. It's from listener Zara from Quebec. And she wrote to say, hi, I started listening to both of your podcasts. She wrote to mom stuff too, by the way. Started listening to both of your podcasts back in 2010 on the recommendation from my husband, who was a truck driver at the time. I gave birth to a baby boy last year in September. And during the pregnancy, I finished listening to all the podcasts from mom stuff. I finished history stuff a while before. Well, wouldn't you guess when he's restless in the car, I can put on either of your podcasts and he calms down long enough to reach home. She listens to a few other How Stuff Works podcasts, too, which, while she enjoys them, it sounds like they don't have quite the same effect on the baby. (laughs) (laughs) So she wrote, During the last year, I listened to you in the car, at home, and at work. Thanks for all the interesting podcasts, and I hope we'll hear you for a long while yet. So a very fun note. She also had some baby tips for Dublina, you know. Sharing, sharing the info. I appreciate that. I don't think I can use the podcast thing. No. <laughs> in the car. It's just mom talking It's again. just mom talking, and it doesn't work on her. My talking to her in the car doesn't calm her restlessness <laughs> while we're driving. So, I don't know, maybe Kristen Conger would help. Maybe. Oh, well, maybe I, I should just say, try a different voice. Because if, if you got tired of talking and your voice did help, you could just pop in a podcast, and she would just think you were talking to her. If only that worked. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I'm glad it does work for somebody. This is another thing. You can add calming babies, scaring bears, all sorts of interesting things that our voices do for the world. <laughs> if you know of any other uses, or maybe you just have some parenting tips for me that you'd like to pass along, <laughs> along I welcome them. Uh, you can write to us. We're at History Podcast at Discovery.com, or you can look us up on Twitter. We're also on Facebook. And we also have something that's somewhat tied to this really fascinating and tragic subject that we talked about today. It's, did the United States put its own citizens in concentration camps during World War II? I think, you know, from the podcast, the answer is yes. But, of course, it goes into a lot more detail than that. So you can search for that one on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.